1: If where we're headed is a situation where the courts essentially demand that Congress or a state legislature has to, to delegate authority in highly specific terms, that's bad for public health. That's bad for our ability to live in, a, in, a, in communities where our health is interdependent on the health of others in our community and where there are threats particularly communicable disease threats that evolve rapidly, where our scientific understanding evolves rapidly, where the measures that we are able to identify and implement to combat those threats um, are hard to anticipate in specific terms.
2: I'm Lawfare Senior Editor, Scott R. Anderson, and this is the Lawfare Podcast for April 29th, 2022. Last week, a federal district judge in Florida named Catherine Mizell struck down the Biden administration's policy requiring that individuals wear masks on airplanes and other forms of interstate travel. In doing so, she adopted an extremely narrow reading of relevant public health statutes to conclude that they did not authorize any such masking policies, a move that has since triggered more questions about what public health tools the federal government will have left if Mizell's decision is left to stand. To better understand this decision and its ramifications, I sat down with two legal experts. Lindsay Wiley, a professor specializing in health law and policy at the University of California, Los Angeles School of Law, and Alan Rosenstein, a Lawfare Senior Editor and professor of, among other things, legislative and regulatory law at the University of Minnesota Law School. We talked about Mizell's approach to statutory interpretation, the role of the major questions doctrine, whether her views are likely to survive appeal, and how the entire endeavor is likely to impact ongoing efforts to combat the coronavirus pandemic. It's the Lawfare Podcast for April 29th. Understanding the legal decision that ended the mask mandate and what comes next. Lindsay, let me ask you to get us started with a little bit of a history lesson. What is the legal provision that is at the core of this most recent decision? And what is the role it has played, both historically over the last several decades, it's been on the books, and also specifically in regard to fighting the coronavirus pandemic?
1: So the statute at the heart of these disputes, not just over the transit mask order, but also over the eviction order and other actions, you know, hard regulatory actions that CDC has taken during the pandemic, is in the 1944 Public Health Service Act, and specifically Section 361, more specifically Section 361A. Um, You know, this is a 1944 law, but it wasn't the kind of first version of federal disease control powers. Congress apparently considered itself to be sort of modernizing and codifying a much older law at the time. But there was debate at the time and also testimony from the the then Surgeon General, you know, that was a role that that was much different at the time than it is today. It really was a, a regulatory role akin to the CDC director. Testimony from him to the effect of, you know, we in this room cannot possibly anticipate Um, the types of threats that federal health officials will face in the future, or the types of measures that may be needed to respond to those threats. And so Congress had this debate and chose to include some catch-all language. So just to walk through it, Section 361A starts off with a first sentence that authorizes federal officials to make and enforce such regulations as in their judgment are necessary to prevent introduction, transmission, or spread of communicable diseases across international borders and across state and territorial borders within the U.S., And then the second sentence of 361A is a list of measures authorized by the first sentence. Um, For the purposes of carrying out and enforcing such regulations, officials may provide for inspection, fumigation, disinfection, sanitation, pest extermination, destruction of animals or articles found to be so infected or contaminated as to be sources of dangerous infection to human beings. And then this is the key language that I always italicize and underline in bold and other measures as in their judgment may be necessary. Um, Section 361B through D, impose additional limits when Section 361A is used to apprehend, detain, examine, or conditionally release individuals. And this is a point that I think some judges have understood and others have missed. Those subsections that are specifically about um, powers over individuals don't actually have authorizing language. They impose additional limits when the section is used Um, for these purposes, but it it appears to me that Congress understood the authorization to come from that catch-all language in 361A, suggesting that Congress intended that that language encompassed more than the specific examples, and even more than sort of things that are quite similar to destruction of animals or articles or disinfection of animals or articles. This power historically has not been used extensively by CDC, Um, You know, 1944, this was in response to a yellow fever outbreak. It was also in the midst of World War II, a time when Congress was, you know, arguably expanding federal powers vis-a-vis the states. But this was after the influenza pandemic. It was after or, you know, sort of in the midst of still worrying a bit about smallpox in the midst of mid-century polio outbreaks, state and local governments were really taking the lead. There weren't there wasn't much of a role for federal gap filling in response to the threats of the mid-century um, disease outbreaks. Uh, CDC has used this power to quarantine, um, examine conditionally release individuals. Most recently, prior to the pandemic, to quarantine a traveler with uh, suspected of having drug resistant TB. It's important to note, just as I wrap up, that FDA also exercises powers delegated under this section to do things in routine times. These are not technically emergency powers that are dependent on an emergency declaration. FDA has an entire category of products that it regulates that it refers to as Section 361 products, including things like small turtles that may carry salmonella. So during the COVID pandemic, CDC initially used 361 powers to impose federal quarantine and isolation orders for the first time in decades, for, but only for citizens who were repatriated from Hubei province by the State Department. So a very narrow use of that power. Then we saw CDC issuing a cruise no-sail order and then a, um, a conditional sale order imposing conditions on resumption of cruising. That was really sort of more of a gap filling role for CDC. State and local governments didn't have that uh, comprehensive authority over cruises. The eviction moratorium was different. They're using that same power, but as a floor, creating a federal floor to support state and local efforts, um, but also ensure a more uniform response. And then finally, the CDC transit mask order, which was the focus of the most recent case.
2: So, Lindsay, you've laid out this background on this measure and how it's been used, but we've seen some judicial action up until this latest decision, prior to this latest decision around a number of these pandemic-related measures that the Biden administration has pursued and the Trump administration before it to some extent. Tell us a little bit about what that legal litigation landscape has looked like and that kind of lay out the terrain for us legally that existed prior to Judge Mizell stepping in and issuing this opinion here?
1: So at this point, every type of order that CDC has issued under uh, 361A has been blocked by at least the lower courts, with the exception of the individual quarantine orders um, that were used in January of 2020 for repatriated citizens. These same issues have been coming up again and again. The eviction moratorium order, the orders halting and then imposing conditions for cruise ship operations, as well as the use of CDC's Title 42 authority to impose border controls, although that raises um, separate statutory language. So far, only one of these cases The eviction moratorium ordered litigation has made it to the Supreme Court, and the Supreme Court offered a shadow docket ruling and an opinion that provides at least some insight into how the majority may view uh, Section 361A. That's something we can talk about. The rest of CDC's orders have been blocked by lower court judges um, in the case of the cruise conditional sale order. Uh, The 11th Circuit sort of went back and forth rapidly over whether to stay um, that decision, but ultimately left it in place.
2: So, Alan, let me turn to you on the specific opinion that we've seen Judge Mazel come forward with just the other week. It begins with an exercise of statutory interpretation, looking at that exact statutory language Lindsay has done such a wonderful job laying out for us. They're kind of four prongs, focusing on that first prong, prong A, but reads it and views it uh, certainly a little differently than I think Lindsay has just put forward. Walk us through how she, meaning Judge Mazzell, approaches this statutory language and how it syncs with the usual approaches to statutory interpretation that we
3: may otherwise expect from judges or that you teach to your students? Sure. So just going to zoom out for a second. So the opinion is really two parts. There's the front half, which is the statutory interpretation part, which I think is the the more important part of the opinion um, and the one we're going to talk about right now. And then there's also the back half, which I think is also worth talking about at some point, which is uh, the part about the administrative procedures that went into this decision and why Judge Mazel thinks that they are inadequate. Um, but talking about the statutory interpretation part, um, Judge Mazzel gives a number of reasons for why, in her view, Section 361A does not permit the mask mandate. You know, the, the 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 main one, or at least the first one, uh, is a very close parsing of the word sanitation. Uh, so as, as Lindsay described, right, there are a number of things that the CDC can do in order to prevent the spread of communicable diseases. One of those things is sanitation. And uh, Judge Mazzel, Uh, argues that sanitation among that list is really the only one that might be uh, applicable. And as to the catch-all or other measures uh, that comes at the end of that list, she interprets that really quite narrowly as to not really add substantively to the specific actions that are listed uh, previously. Uh, Having done that, Judge Mazell then uh, spends quite a few pages, actually, on a very fine-grained parsing uh, of what, in her opinion, sanitation means and what sanitation meant at the time that the law was enacted. And her uh, conclusion is that sanitation only refers to the cleaning of objects in particular, and thus um, a mask, um, because it does not clean a surface, um, as she puts it, therefore cannot be sanitation. That's the the, the, the first of the uh, statutory interpretation arguments. Um, having done that, uh, Judge Mazel also argues that 361A, uh, which is the uh, authorizing statute, only applies to property, whereas the other provisions, the subsections B through D, uh, apply to people. And because the CDC brought the action under uh, subsection A, um, it could not do so in a way that would require anything of individuals rather simply than property. That's the substantive uh, statutory interpretation analysis. And then the rest of the statutory interpretation analysis. Uh, asks the question uh, that is uh, always at issue in uh, administrative law case of to what extent should the courts defer to the agency interpretations of the statutes that they are charged with implementing, especially where those statutes are ambiguous. Uh, and here, and I think this may be the most dramatic uh, part of of the opinion. Though I'm very curious to get Lindsay's thoughts about this as well. Here, uh, Judge Mazel puts forward two arguments for why the CDC should not get the usual deference that it would get from courts in interpreting its own statute. This deference is called Chevron deference after a famous Supreme Court case that uh, stated uh, how it works. Uh, One reason Judge Mazel points out is that deference to an ambiguous statute only applies where the statute is ambiguous. And on her reading of the statute, in particular, her analysis of the word sanitation, she believes the statute not only does not clearly authorize the CDC to impose a mask mandate, it clearly does not authorize the CDC to impose a mask mandate. Um, She thinks the statute is unambiguous as she reads it. But then also she says, even if the statute were ambiguous, the CDC should not get discretion to interpret it in the way that it wants to um, because of what's called the uh, major question exception to Chevron. Uh, And This is an idea that has been floating around for a while. It's gotten a little more prominent in Supreme Court uh, opinions in the last few years that whatever deference agency should get with regard to ambiguous statutes, that deference should not apply where the ambiguity refers to a major issue of policy, to basically an important question. Now, there's a lot of ambiguity around what counts as an important question, Um, and there's also reasons to wonder whether this doctrine even makes a lot of sense, given the whole point of traditional deference to agency interpretations of statutes. Uh, But nevertheless, that's what Judge Mazell applies. And so she says, precisely because the mask mandate is a very important and influential policy, uh, the CDC should not have deference to decide whether it has the ability to do so. It is up for the court to decide in this case, Judge Mazzell decided that the CDC did not have this power.
2: Now, Lindsay, you can correct me if I'm wrong. This doesn't sound a lot like how you read this statute. So can you bring us a little bit of clarity on where you depart from Judge Mazzell well, you know, What steps do you think she took that were inappropriate in approaching how to read this statute, at least starting with the plain text? Then I want to get into major questions, some of these bigger, a uh, little bit more meta questions about deference. But let's just start with the text itself. What is she getting wrong, if she is getting something wrong, and how she reads the statutory language?
1: So rather than pitting Judge Mazzell's decision against my own interpretation, I'd actually like to pit it against the Supreme Court's interpretation in the Alabama Realtors case with regard to the eviction moratorium, which was interpreting the exact same statutory provision. There, I think there's an indication that the majority understands Section 361A, not just to encompass actions against uh, animals and articles that CDC might take or that FDA might take, but also to be the source of authority for quarantine and isolation and examination and conditional release of people. The Supreme Court's decision, um, the the per curiam opinion, specifically refers to Section 361A as being used for quarantine and isolation, right? Not locating that authority in another subsection as Judge Mizell did. And I think that matters because it indicates that the Supreme Court shares my view that 361A is broader than that specific list of items in the second sentence of 361A, that it also includes... Actions against people, the Supreme Court then agrees that the other necessary measures is not unlimited in the end they found that it didn't encompass an eviction moratorium, for example, but rather than trying to locate the cdc's mask mandate within one of the specific examples in the second sentence of three hundred sixty one a what the Supreme Court suggests it might do in the eviction moratorium case is characterize both those specific examples in the second sentence and actions against individuals to detain, examine, isolate, um, quarantine, conditionally release them, and and ask, what do these things have in common? The Supreme Court then adopts a directness, remoteness test, similar to what we see for proximate cause in, uh, in torts, to say that the examples discussed in the statute, not just in that one sentence, but throughout the section, what they share in common is that they involve identifying, isolating, and destroying what the Supreme Court calls the disease, but is more properly understood as the pathogen itself. I think that language, I think specifically the choice of the word isolating, would allow significantly more authority to CDC, including potentially for a mask requirement, which does functionally isolate the pathogen, keep it from spreading to others within the mask, uh, then Judge Mazzel's order would, right? The Supreme Court in that case doesn't try to locate the eviction moratorium in one of those specific items in that, in that list in the second sentence. As a separate matter, I think Judge Mazzel's argument that the language is unambiguous, specifically the definition of sanitation, after she herself introduces two competing definitions from contemporaneous dictionaries of the word sanitation, um, you know, that seems a bit disingenuous. That said, the Supreme Court also found that, at least with respect to the question of whether an eviction moratorium was authorized, that it was unambiguously clear that an eviction moratorium did not fall within the scope of the statutory provision. I'll just add that that second broader dictionary definition of sanitation that Judge Mazzell introduces and then rejects is actually far more consistent with the way the word has been used in public health statutes, not just at the federal level, but at state and local levels, going back to colonial times. Sanitation has a very particular and particularly broad meaning within public health. You know, early public health workers described themselves as sanitarians and in fact understood most of the actions that they undertook to fall within that label.
2: Yeah, I have to admit one of my favorite parts of the opinion is where, where she actually does away with a third interpretation uh, that she acknowledges is in dictionaries at the time of sanitation, where it's relating to matters related to public health and the efforts to promote them, something that in fact what she does away with with a footnote uh, kind of on the argument that it's, it is too broad and therefore would be taking out or preempt the uh, other terms included on that list. Which is a representative list, um, which doesn't make a, a great deal of sense to me. But she is playing this uh, a, a little bit of game with these dictionary definitions. Alan, that brings me back to a question for you from the perspective of the philosophy behind statutory interpretation, right? You know, a lot of the logic behind the move towards a much more textualist statutory interpretation is the idea that it constrains the judiciary. Uh, It's a reaction to purposivism and these other sort of approaches that courts historically took that pulled from legislative history, pulled from a broad policy sense about what Congress is trying to accomplish with statutes that many criticized were vehicles for judges inserting their subjective preferences or policy preferences and reading statutes in a particular way that was undemocratic because judges aren't democratically elected. Instead, textualism is supposed to be more binding because you're supposed to limit judges to the definitions of words as conventionally used at the time by Congress. And therefore, you know, really stick within the bounds of the language that Congress used and what that could have meant, even assuming that Congress actually uses language the the way it intends and, and says things clearly, which maybe is, is a bit of an assumption. Does this decision tell us anything a little more broadly about how effective an enterprise that is? Um, is textualism as constraining as its proponents have have long maintained? What are the kind of limits on that? I mean, is it, a, is it that constraining or is this a decision, a suggestion that it's less constraining than
3: many take it to be? Well, so I, I think the whole idea of constraining versus not is, I think, a little bit of a non sequitur. And, and the, the reason is that there are very few interpretive methodologies that are truly constraining in, I think, the way that you described just now, because all language is ambiguous The highest profile cases are complex and judges are very smart people who can find ambiguity uh, no matter what type or amount of sources that they use. Um, And we see this similar dynamic in, for example, um, originalism uh, as a kind of historically inflected interpretive methodology for constitutional law, also something that has often been uh, held uh, or justified as further constraining judges but uh, as we've seen can be used uh, in very creative ways to give judges actually quite a bit of power there's really no i think direct relationship between the breadth of sources considered and the constraint or lack thereof on judges you know because although one can argue that textualism by forcing judges to focus on the text constrains them because it does not allow them to use other uh, sources like purpose or legislative history, that may be true in some cases. But in other cases, especially where the purpose and legislative history all point in one direction, a myopic focus on the text, especially on individual words decontextualized, where they have multiple dictionary meanings, for example, can actually increase judicial discretion. Um, In other words, where you narrow the scope of judicial interpretive sources, um, but you allow judges to analyze them ever more deeply and ever more creatively, or to put it less charitably, where you allow them to torture the words um, until they give up the meaning that the judge wants, you haven't really constrained judicial discretion whatsoever. And so what I think we're seeing here is the uh, fact that textualism, like any interpretive philosophy, um, when pushed beyond its plausibility, frankly becomes just another vehicle for judges to substitute their policy judgments in favor of What the legislature wanted. Now, I don't think that this means that all the insights of textualism, which is a very broad based movement in statutory interpretation developed over the past four decades, should be thrown out. Uh, The best argument for textualism is that, properly used, it forces judges to pay attention to the text and not read away uh, or not ignore uncomfortable details in the text simply by appeals to Congress's purpose, because Congress often compromises in what it wants to do. And often the best evidence of that compromise is to be found in the legislative text. But there's nothing magic about text as the only valid source of evidence for Congress's intent. It has to be balanced Against other sources. Just as in normal communication, we who are engaged in statutory interpretation or uh, verbal interpretation of each other are looking at a variety of sources. We're looking at speech. We're looking at body language. We're looking at what we know about the other person's history. We're looking at our basic assumptions about human psychology. And so what I think this opinion shows is that if you focus only on one source to the expense of all the others, you will ultimately get a very distorted reading. um, And you will not be a faithful interpreter of Congress's intent, which is theoretically what the whole point of statutory interpretation is. Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. At Mint Mobile,
2: we like to do the opposite of what big wireless does. They charge you a lot, we charge you a little. So naturally, when they announced they'd be raising their prices due to inflation, we decided to deflate our prices due to not hating you.
0: LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't
2: find anywhere else, even those who aren't actively searching for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today.
0: Hey, Lawfare listeners, Ben Wittes here. I want to tell you about the first time I got a report from the folks at Delete Me. It was shortly after I started using the service back in 2022. And they sent me their first privacy report. I have since gotten eight others and it contains some shocking information. They had removed my data from 56 separate data brokers. and enter code LAWFARE20 at checkout. That's joindeleteme.com slash LAWFARE20, code LAWFARE20.
2: Before we move on from statutory interpretation, we have to deal with the elephant in the room, if you will, uh, the aptly named major questions doctrine, which provides this other escape hatch from Chevron. Now, as Alan, uh, I believe it was already laid out, you know, uh, Judge Moselle avoided actually invoking it here notes that it would be available, but says, "But in this case, the statute isn't actually ambiguous, so i don't actually need to get to the point where I invoked major question doctrine, but the fact that she talks about it nonetheless becomes clearly is suggesting that that's another alternative argument she could invoke, and presumably on which an appellate court should uphold her her conclusion in her view. Lindsay, let me ask you about this. Tell us a little bit about the role major questions doctrine has played in the courts, meaning the federal courts more broadly, approach to this measures around the pandemic, which do entail pretty exceptional circumstances and using statutes that were perhaps by design broadly worded. How has it come up in the context of this prior litigation around this measure? And and how does the way Judge Mazzell is applying it here align with those prior invocations?
1: So, uh, although I'm not an administrative law expert, I, I have to do a lot of administrative law as a public health law teacher and scholar. And and one thing I've realized over the course of this pandemic, working you know more closely with admin law scholars and with Fed Court scholars, is that public health sort of has a unique relationship to some of these doctrines that maybe. Um, are being relied on more heavily for deregulatory, for sort of deregulatory agenda than they had been in the past. But public health has a long history of, of the use of major questions doctrine and, and other non-delegation doctrine as well, other deregulatory moves. Um, going back quite a while, I mean, Brown and Williamson itself was a tobacco control decision on, on, a, on, a, on a pretty fundamental level. You know, when we're talking about managing a public health emergency, or really even um, a non-emergency that is, you know, rapidly evolving, complex, dynamic, you know, threats that that evolve over time, legislators historically have um, relied very heavily on broadly framed delegations of authority to public health officials who are appointed, at least in part, based on their scientific expertise, um, I think as a matter of good governance, that's that's sort of um, pretty fundamental to the idea of managing this kind of threat. We have seen this doctrine rear its head um, throughout the pandemic and relatedly the non-delegation doctrine, not just at the federal level, but in, in the state courts um, vis-a-vis state administrative officials as well. You know, I think the Supreme Court raised it arguably even more obliquely in the eviction moratorium decision. In a similar way, though, said you know the language here is clear, but even if it were not, um, there are reasons. It was sort of mysteriously saying reasons that the government's interpretation that's so broad should be rejected, and then just a cite to Brown and Williamson. We've also seen this come up with respect to the federal vaccination requirements in the OSHA case, and uh, and again we've seen it come up at the at the state court level as well. If where we're headed is a situation where the courts essentially demand that Congress or a state legislature has to, to delegate authority in highly specific terms. That's bad for public health. That's bad for our ability to live in, a, in, a, in communities where our health is interdependent on the health of others in our community and where there are threats, particularly communicable disease threats that evolve rapidly, where our scientific understanding evolves rapidly, where the measures That we are able to identify and implement to combat those threats um, are hard to anticipate in specific terms.
3: To follow up on that, I think it's very important when we talk about the major questions canon or the major questions exception to Chevron. There are many ways of formalizing this and formulating it, but really the kind of central idea is just that before we think that Congress has allowed an agency to do something important, we want Congress to be fairly explicit. That's really the, the general idea behind all of these kinds of interrelated doctrines. I think it's important to appreciate the different ways that that move can be justified. So anytime you do anything in statutory interpretation, you really can justify it theoretically in one of two ways. One, you can justify it as a empirically accurate reflection of Congress's actual intent. You are actually trying to be faithful to what the individuals who voted for the law actually wanted. The other way you can justify uh, statutory interpretation argument is to say there are other grounds um other values constitutional values democratic values rights values whatever the case is that are uh, if not more important than at least as important in certain circumstances as Congress's actual intent and so even if we're not really getting at Congress's intent it's still important to uh, interpret the statute in this particular way and it's really important that we be very clear as to which justification we're using in any particular case. Now, I think for the reasons Lindsay just pointed out, trying to justify the major questions approach, especially in public health cases, is not going to be justifiable on empirical grounds, Um, precisely because there's good reason to think that both as a general matter and especially in terms of public health, and especially when this public health statute was written, given the United States' experience with the 1918 flu, given the rise of the administrative state at the time, given the the sort of general New Deal context, that Congress actually did quite want to provide a very broad delegation to agencies, to public health agencies, to act in the way that the public health agencies thought were important for the promotion of uh, public health. Now, that doesn't necessarily mean that there's no grounds for having some sort of major questions kind of limitation on the doctrine. Um, because although one element of good governance, as Lindsay pointed out, is having agencies that can act to robustly protect public health, another element of good governance, right, at least as our constitutional structure is generally understood, is that Congress, which is the most democratic, the most representative branch, it's, there's a reason that it's in Article One of the Constitution, it comes first in our constitutional system, that Congress is supposed to make the really, really hard decisions. And so we don't want to let Congress essentially shirk that responsibility by offloading it onto agencies. And so, you know, I I think that we can distinguish, for example, the eviction case uh, from this case uh, and say that, look, whatever anyone thinks about whether the statute does or does not clearly authorize an eviction moratorium, there's something to the Supreme Court's idea that if we uh, don't draw some line as to what these public health measures can be, we're basically letting Congress write a blank check to the CDC. And Congress needs to be the one to be ultimately politically responsible uh, for very far-reaching second and third order policies, uh, like an eviction moratorium. Where it's less arguable, I think, is to say that even if we're going to have a major questions doctrine somehow, drawing the line in a mask mandate seems to me very odd. A mask mandate strikes me as much more limited than something like an eviction moratorium, and much more within the core of what Congress could have anticipated the CDC doing. So I think there there is, or at least one can argue for the there there being a role for a major questions doctrine even in a public health statute, because you know the CDC needs to have some checks on its authority; otherwise, it can recharacterize everything as public health. But here, the way Judge Mazel drew that line strikes me as uh, an odd and and very aggressive Um, because if this statute as it is written and it's in its historical context is not enough to authorize even a mask mandate, it's very unclear how Congress is ever supposed to pass uh, any sort of truly effective public health measure.
1: I agree and just want to add not just any mask mandate, but a mask mandate that covers settings that state and local governments cannot reach. That really seems to be um, highly consistent with what Congress envisioned as a as, as a gap-filling role for federal health officials to, to reach those settings, at least with respect to interstate transit, um, that state and local governments
2: can't. So I want to get to where this opinion is headed next. Before we do, we have to deal with the second half, that administrative law procedural aspect of this that is not the sort of juicy parts that I think most people have engaged on, but is still pretty substantive and actually may have some bearing on, on where this opinion goes. Alan, can you walk us through that a little bit? What are the procedural issues Judge Mazzell sees here, and where does that fit in, in your view, into the more general approaches of administrative
3: law to these sorts of questions? Sure. Uh, and you're right. In, on, in one sense, um, this is a major public health decision. But in another way, it's just a run-of-the-mill administrative law case, in particular in two ways. So there are two procedural deficiencies that Judge Moselle found with respect to the mask mandate. Uh, one is that she found that the CDC was not authorized in this case to uh, forego what is traditionally called notice and comment. And this is the idea that generally when, a, when an administrative agency wants to act in particular wants to promulgate a rule or a regulation, it has to first publicly tell the public, hey, here's what we wanna do. And then give the public some time, usually thirty days, to provide comments. And then only after the public has provided comments can the agency actually issue the rule. Uh, the CDC did not do that in this case. And there is a provision in the Administrative Procedures Act which allows uh, the agency uh, for "quote unquote" good cause to avoid notice and comment, in particularly where there's an emergency situation. The agency has to act uh, right now. Um, and Judge Mazel said that in this case, given when the, the, the mask mandate was issued, given that. Case rates were relatively low at the time. Um, the CDC could have waited 30 days and it wouldn't have been such a big deal. So that's uh, one procedural defect Judge Mazzell found. The other procedural defect uh, she found was that the actual substance of the law here was, uh, quote, arbitrary and capricious. Uh, basically, because there were certain exemptions, because children under the age of two don't have to wear masks, uh, I think because uh, certain disabled individuals don't have to wear masks under the mask mandate, uh, Judge Mazel said that really the mask mandate itself didn't make a ton of sense. It didn't actually accomplish the goals that the CDC was trying to accomplish. Now, these arguments have their own problems and litigating them on the merits is important. But I think the reason that this part of the opinion has had less, kind of has made less news, as it were, is that these judgments from Judge Mazel are much more fact bound, right? They're specifically about the way the CDC issued this particular regulation um, at the time it did, the specific justifications it gave for this regulation. Uh, and so, while the CDC losing on these grounds wouldn't be great because it would further again limit um, over the long term the sorts of things that administrative agencies can do by increasing the procedural requirements on them, it wouldn't, I think, substantively change administrative agency power or jurisdiction. Um And so what I think is is notable is that um judge Moelle, um although she had a more limited, way of dealing with this case. She could have just said, look, the the CDC made procedural mistakes, and so I'm going to vacate the mask mandate on those grounds. She went far beyond that to make these very aggressive statutory interpretation holdings that we talked about earlier in the conversation. And and I think there, this reflects just a, a broader willingness of judges, especially on the conservative side of the spectrum, to really aggressively limit the administrative state in ways that we really haven't seen in some sense, since before the New Deal.
1: I'll just add from a public health perspective, a a little context on each of those procedural points. So on the first question about notice and comment rulemaking, I think this really goes to the heart of some of the incredibly complex challenges that have been raised by our public health response to COVID, which in many ways is a throwback to the kinds of broadly applicable measures based on the assumption that anyone could be infectious at any time that that we really haven't used widely in over 100 years in this country, instead of the kinds of individually targeted measures that are based on determining who's infectious and when and targeting those individuals more narrowly. What we've seen in the intervening decades is a lot of attention as part of public health law modernization efforts to the procedural protections that should apply to those individually targeted measures. So CDC underwent just an absolutely painstaking and grueling uh, rulemaking process with respect to individual quarantine, adopting all kinds of substantive and procedural protections. But when it comes to something like masks, that just wasn't seen as part of a modernization effort. Um, And so we don't have those same kinds of procedural protections or procedural expectations in place for those broadly applicable orders. This rule versus order distinction in the context of social distancing and masks really does require some some hard thinking um, going forward to prepare for the next respiratory pandemic. And then secondly, on the point of you know the arbitrariness or capriciousness of this decision, I think that was actually one of the really problematic parts of this this judge's opinion. We've also seen it in other COVID cases related to things like, well, are gyms really as dangerous as restaurants or are they more like churches or are they, you know, we've seen judges not just asking whether there's a rational basis and a reasoned explanation that health officials have adopted and, and, and provided to the public in a transparent way. But really asking whether they, as judges, as individuals, agree with the scientific basis, agree that this is the best approach. And so we see, for example, Judge Mazzell mentioning, you know, why not temperature checks? That's really not meant to be the role of judges in this context.
2: So one last technical question for you all. A lot of the media reporting around this case has described what Judge Mazzell did as issuing a nationwide injunction. Um, but it's interesting because you look at the remedies, you look at the decisions, which how she describes what she's doing, those aren't words that appear in her decision. She really says, I'm vacating the CDC's order uh, and then closing out this case, essentially, among a couple other more procedural sorts of measures. Is that, you know... A difference without a, a really meaningful distinction? Uh, is it splitting hairs? Is it okay for the media to be describing this as a nationwide injunction? Or is the posture that comes out of this decision actually substantially different in a way that that's meaningful from a legal or policy perspective?
1: So I think uh, the sort of procedural implications, the, the kind of practical on the ground implications of this decision to vacate CDC's order, they really highlight the fact that CDC doesn't really have enforcement tools at its disposal directly. And so, you know, what we might typically see is an injunction blocking enforcement. Um, but the defendant here, CDC, isn't really engaged in enforcement directly. You know, The, the injunction could be against TSA. TSA has issued security directives that enforce the order, at least in some contexts, but a lot of enforcement is actually happening through state and local officials. And a lot of it is really discretionary. And and in a lot of places, there's just no enforcement whatsoever. It's really interesting that the the rapidity with which this decision had an effect, right? Uh, You know, I have a family member who was on a plane in midair at the moment uh, that it was announced and literally the pilot made an announcement, right? And we've seen video footage of cheers and whatever else, you know, pilot made an announcement you can take off your masks now. I think that's in part because this, like many other pandemic response measures, is an order that in reality, depends on widespread voluntary compliance and depends on the actions of a lot of private institutions and businesses and even just individual employees and managers on the ground for its implementation, rather than sort of top-down enforcement efforts by the agency itself. And I think in a sense, Judge Mizell's order was savvy in that way and recognizing that simply invalidating the order would have the effect she desired.
2: Well, that really leads really nicely into what comes next. Because as you already noted, we saw a pretty quick reaction kind of on the policy level to this decision being issued. We saw a number of pilots announce, as Lindsay already described, you know, oh, take your mask if it's okay. Although it's, it's not clear the airlines necessarily immediately change their policies. It appears to be a little bit of a Uh, spontaneous reaction by some pilots, some um, flight attendants, some other folks uh, running these sorts of flights. We did see TSA come out pretty quickly and say, we're not going to enforce the mask mandate right now in response to this, um, which is a kind of curious measure. And we saw the Biden administration initially, some could say equivocate on their intent to appeal this initially saying, "Well, we're going to wait for the c d c to make a determination which had already been on track to kind of consider as to whether the mass bad day is necessary to continue this, but then about twenty four hours later, as I recall. Uh, CDC made that determination. Justice Department said, yeah, in fact, we are going to appeal this. And so this appears to be headed next to the Circuit Court of Appeals. What do we expect or should we expect for that next step? Uh, you know, where is this case happening legally? And then also, you know, where is this policy headed? Obviously, it's a policy that the Biden administration was already, and the CDC was already engaged in beginning to reconsider a little bit. And there's been a lot of talk in a lot of circles about the possibility that maybe the Biden administration wants to get this policy done with because it is politically unpopular, because its public health benefits is maybe limited by some accounts, although I think some people would dispute that. Where do we think this is headed next? Alan, let me start with you on the legal front. And then, Lindsay, I want to come to you a little bit more on on this public health specific context.
3: It, it does put the Biden administration in an in a, I think, tricky spot, because as you pointed out, I don't think the Biden administration was terribly enthusiastic about continuing the mask mandate. Um, it was due to expire uh, in early May. Now, obviously, the Biden administration could have extended it. And indeed, the CDC has represented that it was going to seriously consider extending it. And that's, of course, what the Biden administration has to represent in order for the case to not be moot on appeal. Uh, But it does put the Biden administration in an odd light because I don't think they really want, especially now that the mask mandate has been uh, vacated, they don't really want to be in the political position of requiring Americans to put masks back on. Now, that being said, I don't think the decision really left the Biden administration much choice but to appeal because of its breadth, especially in the first half of it and its fairly radical narrow reading of the CDC's authorities. I think, again, had this been a purely administrative procedure opinion, I think the Biden administration probably would have just swallowed it and maybe even internally breathed a sigh of relief. But because the opinion so radically limits the CDC's authority, I don't think the Biden administration can really afford, and certainly the CDC can't afford, having it out there. Now, it is just district court opinion, and they are not themselves presidential. But just having an opinion out there validly uh, or having a valid opinion out there that that has this very narrow construction of the CDC's authorities is really troubling. And also, I wonder if the Biden administration is thinking that even in a relatively unfriendly judicial landscape, even with a 6-3 conservative Supreme Court, this opinion may be so extreme and ultimately so unpersuasive in its aggressive uh, textualism that uh, you might be able to actually peel off Um, a couple of conservative justices on the Supreme Court. Um, I suspect this is the sort of opinion where you could get uh, certainly the chief justice to say, look, the district court went too far in this case, maybe also even uh, Justice Kavanaugh and maybe Justice Barrett in this case. And so although there is some risk that by appealing this decision, you're going to get a binding circuit or even Supreme Court precedent radically limiting the CDC's authorities, this may be just the sort of judicial overreach of the district court that provides an opportunity for even the more conservative justices to say, okay, let's pull back a little bit. We're all textualists, but we're not this kind of textualist.
1: I think that's right from a public health perspective as well. I think... I think we have seen real ambivalence in the Biden administration about this appeal. My understanding as of this morning is that the administration is not seeking a stay of the lower court 's ruling and is simply appealing the decision, which you know immediately upon that being reported, you know we have a piece in reason that came out saying, well, if it 's so important, why not seek to stay the uh, decision itself?" That said, I take the Biden administration at its word um, when it said that it was issuing a very brief renewal of the mask mandate of only about two weeks um, most recently while they waited to see what was happening with what appeared uh, to be the beginnings of a surge from a a new variant of of the Omicron variant of COVID. Um, I think the administration was headed toward lifting this requirement and so seeking to kind of go to the map for this transit mask mandate um was not you know not the priority reading between the lines of investigative reporting i think it took some convincing to take what was maybe perceived as a political hit in exchange for preserving future administrations authority to combat future pathogens you know that that easily could be even more dangerous easily could be even more fatal than the current strain of covid And I think there are reasons, you know, looking carefully at the Supreme Court opinion in the eviction order, I think there are reasons to expect that the Supreme Court, maybe even the 11th Circuit, will leave the door open um, a bit more for this kind of gap filling transit mask requirement, particularly in spaces where state and local governments would not have jurisdiction.
2: Well, unfortunately, we are going to have to leave the conversation there, but I think that's a good stopping point on this particular topic, and we will all be watching to see what happens next. We may well have opportunity to convene again and discuss further developments. Until then, Lindsay Wiley, Alan Rosenstein, thank you so much for joining us here on The Lawfare Podcast. The Lawfare Podcast is produced in cooperation with the Brookings Institution, Please be sure to rate and review us wherever you get your podcasts, and look out for Lawfare's other podcasts, including Rational Security, Chatter, and our latest podcast series on the U.S. withdrawal from Afghanistan and the partners we left behind, Allies. Be sure to visit lawfareblog.com for our extensive written coverage of national security law and policy issues, and consider becoming a material supporter of Lawfare at www.patreon.com lawfare to gain access to an ad-free version of this and other Lawfare podcasts, as well as special events and other content available only to our supporters. This podcast was edited by Jen Patcha Howell and our audio engineer was Kara Schillen of Goat Rodeo. Our music is performed by Sophia Yan. As always, thank you for listening.
1: Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quinn's.